This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, Just the next big poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and your host for this two-hour tour through data, analytics, and sports. I'm joined today by a friend of the show, someone that's been on the show before, co-hosting with me, uh, Dan Schwab, co-president of DNH Distributing, someone who's also an owner of multiple sports teams. So Dan, first of all, thank you for coming all the way from Harrisburg area here. Uh, thanks for being here on the show with me. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So one of the things I mentioned in the opening is your kind of ownership of multiple sports teams. I'm sure a lot of our listeners here in Wharton Moneyball would love to know. So what are those teams and what got you as an investor in these types of sports? Well, from an investor standpoint, it really uh, started with uh, just a love of sports. I've always loved sports, always wanted to be involved, and I was lucky enough to have some friends that were active, uh, from minor league sports to professional soccer, and the opportunity arose for us to take a minority interest, a very small percentage, which is really a great way to enjoy all the benefits of being ownership without having a lot of equity involved. And we get to do a lot of fun things and uh, and learn a lot as it relates to the business of sports. So, do uh, this is a question I'm sure many of our listeners want to know. Even let's just imagine I'm making up a number. Let's say there's 10, 20, 30 minority owners. Do they ever get you guys together and just say, so what do you think about whether it's the business side or is the bi- and or is it the on field side or is the on field side kind of always walled off like that? Like leave that to us. We're happy to get your opinion about whether we should build a new stadium, refurbish this, what our marketing deal should be, but. On- on-field is separate. Well, as it relates, to, it depends on the sport. So first of all, the on-field, as it relates to minor league baseball, Major League Baseball owns the players. In fact, I was, I'm always interested when I go talk to the manager before the game, he gets a sheet from Major League Baseball saying these are the pitchers that can pitch, these guys can't pitch. This guy, I don't care if he struck out eight times, I want him batting the entire game. This guy, uh, you know, we want, you know, we want to try this with him. So very, very prescriptive. So the on-field, you've got no influence there. So it really is the off-the-field, and your your involvement is really predicated on the on the primary, the majority ownership, and how active they want everyone to be. So whether you invest in a new stadium, invest in uh, changing your business model, that's where I have a lot of passion in trying to uh, create an inflection point for a franchise. Since you've had both experience in both minor league and professional league, and obviously we're an analytics show here, can you kind of get lift the hood a little bit for us? Do you see a big difference in the use of analytics at the kind of minor league level where, you know, one argue you can make is you can experiment, you can try things, you can say, let's invest in players that use that maximize this advanced analytics. But are you really going to do that at the major leagues? Have you do you see any difference in the use of analytics at the minor league versus major league or professional level? I see it accelerating at both levels. I see very little difference. In fact, if anything, we see it even more so in the professionals. Uh, We see that on a regular basis that more and more um, every team has a statistician and an analytics 
not just person, but team today. And they're using that to drive decisions of where they make investments in players and coaching strategy. So that it's really hit critical mass that I don't think there's any team that, that we're involved with that's not a critical component of their success. I know for me, I can't speak for you. If I was going to think of investing in a team and they didn't have an analytics group, I'd be like, eh, probably not for me, probably not a good fit. Uh, they clearly would be behind the times. I think uh, one of the points was hockey 10 years ago. No team had it. And now today, I think, you know, almost every team has a, an analytics department. So, again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here on Morton Moneyball. And I'm here with Dan Schwab, a co-president of DNH Distributing uh, and also friend of the show. And for those of you that are wondering, like, where are Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner? Well, there's four of us. Some combination of the four of us are here every week between 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132 and replayed throughout the week. And do not worry, Cade, Shane, and Adi will be back next week. It's some combination of us, and we'll continue on in the wonderful four years we've been having here on Wharton Moneyball. So, uh, Dan, one of the things we love doing in the first half hour of our show is the What Caught Our Eye in Sports segment. And so, um, you know, I thought maybe you and I would alternate on What Caught Our Eye in Sports, um, but let's start with you. So, you know, in some sense, this isn't the peak sports time of the year. Right. I mean, it's still the regular season in basketball. It's still the regular season in hockey. Um, there are no triple crown races right now. Um, there's none of the majors in golf. Uh, or tennis, um, but there's still a lot going on. So what caught your eye in sports? Well, I think there's a, a lot going on, whether it's the, the end of the college basketball season. But the big thing that caught my attention this week was obviously the Bryce Harper, the 13-year, $300 million, $330 million deal. We can talk a lot about that, about what's the return on that investment going to be. Was that was that wise? How does it compare to the Manny Machado or uh, any of the other big deals? But my question is that baseball doesn't have a salary cap, right? Or, you know, players can make... Right. There is a, there is a cap, cap by which you pay a luxury, not a, tax. a luxury tax. Right. So the question really is, with no limits on contracts, you know, is, is you know, should he be the highest paid athlete? Or you look at other sports, you know, Mike Trout's going to be a free agent, you know, in two years. But Steph Curry, James Harden, how about Patrick Mahomes or Zion Williamson? He's still in college, but is he literally the person that should be making the most money? I think it'd be interesting comparing, comparing that to who adds the most value to a franchise. Well, let me ask a question. So I'm going to build on the last point you just made, Dan. You're the co-president of a very large company. So I'm going to make, since we're a business show, I'm going to try to relate the Bryce Harper question to something you must, you and, it's your brother, right, that you run DNH with, that you guys must deal with all the time. Let's imagine you have the opportunity to hire a star in your industry, and that person may cost you significant resources. You know, you have to pay that person more than you might have hoped. But if you bring in that person, now all of a sudden lots of other people want to potentially work for you. So the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Sure. You already see Bryce Harper trying to, you know, bring in Trout and others, which we'll get to whether that's tampering. <laughs> we may get to that or not. So how do you as a business person think about hiring stars, possibly quote unquote overpaying, but there could be value for the firm? I think first and foremost, you look at the value they'll bring to the enterprise. How are they going to drive the business? What, what impact can they have? And I think you, you value their compensation based on the impact you believe they can have. In sports, there's a lot more intangibles. There's the the multiplication of, okay, what does it mean to merchandise sales? What does it mean if you actually make the playoffs, right? Those are accelerators that have a dramatic impact, whereas a business is a little bit more of a, of a kind of a machine and how it operates. So I think from that standpoint, we don't always look at it that this person is going to bring a whole team in unless we hire someone says you have to build out an entire new business. 
in that case, that person's worth a lot more because they're you're not paying them for their job. They're paying them on creating an entire business unit. So from our standpoint, it, it is a little bit different, but sometimes people's value is greater than what their individual contribution is. Well, don't you think in some sense, partly, I mean, not just because we have Joel Embiid and uh, Ben Simmons here on the Sixers and the Eagles, obviously we have Carson Wentz, we won the Super Bowl. Don't you think this is another, I'll call it brick, of putting Philadelphia on the map? I mean, this is Bryce Harper could have gone to the Giants. We heard the Dodgers. We heard all kinds of teams. For the right price, any team would take Bryce Harper. Sure. He came to Philadelphia. So, you know, and we always, as you know, as a, well, I don't think you're a native Philadelphia, and I'm not a native Philadelphia. I'm a native New Yorker. But Philadelphia, you know, conceptually has this second class, well, we're not New York, you know, et cetera. He came to Philadelphia. Don't you think that has some intrinsic value for attracting just other players to the team? Oh, I think absolutely. There's no doubt in today, especially in the NBA, how the players have such an influence on where they go and who else they attract to the team. You know, LeBron really started that, but it's really accelerated. So from that standpoint, I think so. Philadelphia, I mean, obviously Boston has been the sports uh, city in the last decade. Philadelphia, if you look and said who is on the right path to becoming the next great sports city, uh, you would absolutely argue that Philadelphia, with the Phillies being a playoff team, uh, with the Sixers on the trajectory and the young athletes they have, the Eagles. So from that standpoint, I absolutely think uh, more so than any other sport, more so I think in basketball than football or, or baseball, they attract other premier athletes to that destination. There are three parts of the contract I'd love to get your perspective on, both from an analytics perspective and also a business person's perspective. The first, I think, that shocked everybody was 13 years. So he's 26. We can all do math. 26 plus 13 is 39. So first, how do you feel about the length of the contract itself? I think it's a... I think they, the people that make the decision don't look at it saying, are they going to get good value on him on the 13th year? The answer is going to be definitively no. Right. That's like if you were in business to give someone a 20 year contract when they're 57, you're not expecting them to be of value uh, when they're 77 to have the same impact as when they're 58. Uh, You just you see law of diminishing returns. So from that standpoint, I think uh, it's the, the investment is what is it over the life of the contract? So far, it's been proven these contracts don't work out, that these people do not earn the compensation that they engender. However, they're arguing that if we can make the World Series twice in the next five years, that may actually pay for the entire contract. So that's I agree with that philosophy. Second point of the contract I thought was very interesting was there's no opt-out clause. So the Phillies control his rights for 13 years. I've never seen a contract. If you even go back to the original A-Rod contract, 10 years, 275, but, you know, he bought out. This was the Rangers. He got out of it after five years. Even the Yankees contract that was re-signed, you look at Giancarlo Stanton, yep. all of these big deals had, they weren't 13 years that the team owns the rights. What do you think about that aspect of it? I think this deal was unique in that it was such big dollars and it was so important. For whoever got him, it was, it was franchise uh, changing, right? This is a big deal. So from that standpoint, I think they said, listen, we're going to bet the farm on you, and we want you to, to we want you to retire here. We want you – we want to control your destiny. We want you to be within our organization. Hopefully you go in the Hall of Fame, and you'll go in the Hall of Fame wearing a Phillies cap. And I think that's a big part of it, that with the amount of money they're giving, it gave them more leverage than they would in any other contract. We actually have a question from Twitter, which is Mike, Mike Shannon tweeted towards us. His question was, how tight do we think the correlation is between Bryce Harper's contract, between a good financial return and winning championships? Like, suppose it turns out from a purely financial perspective, this is a bust. Like, however you want to value a win in baseball, whether it's attendance, jersey, let's even imagine 
they lose a hundred million dollars on it. Right. But in some sense, it leads to winning championships. How, how do you how do you think we should think about that? I have an opinion, but I'd love to go to you first. I think you measure it in franchise value. I think it's pretty straightforward that if that organization over, let's say, the average franchise has a 6% uh, increase every year in their value over the next decade, and this team grows at 9 or 10%, you could easily extrapolate that out and figure out the value of the organization. Yeah, yeah I agree. That's why you and I both know when you hear on the news, oh, we're, you know, we're, the, I'll make it up, the Dallas Mavericks, I'm marking, I'm losing money. Yeah, okay, you're losing money. You bought the franchise for whatever, $200 million, whatever it is, and now it's worth three, $4 billion. Yeah, you're really not really losing money in that way. Right. The other part of the contract I found interesting was, and matter of fact, thanks to our producer, Matt that's we had an over under on this let's do some math if he was making 30 million a year 13 right. times 30 is 390 right his contract is actually only a little more than 25 million a year actually extraordinarily low now what does that mean it means the phillies now have it's not a card cap but have cap space below the luxury tax to go sign other players you know my view is if you could have signed him to a 20-year, $330 million contract so you could spread out, you're going to pay him the 330 anyway. There are guaranteed contracts in baseball. Make it a fi- Look, if MLB wouldn't have avoided it for obvious fraud, make it a 50-year, $330 million contract. Who cares? Yep. Uh, Bobby Bonilla figured that one out. You get paid <laughs> for perpetuity. Still getting paid. Bobby, Billy, uh, Bobby Bonilla is still getting paid over a million dollars a year, which is actually remarkable. So I thought the contract was... Look, I thought the terms of the contract were extraordinarily favorable for the Phillies. No opt-out, long-term contract, and in some sense... I mean, I think he's only making somewhere between 22 and 25 million over the next couple years. I'm like... For Bryce Harper? Well, in fact, you would argue that on a per-year basis. The the Arnado and the Machado, they paid very similar amounts, and they're not locked in for quite as long. So I think uh, from that standpoint, I think uh, the Phillies, you wouldn't look at it and say it was a, a bad decision. It was an expensive decision. We'll see whether it pays off for it. So so what else caught your attention this week? Yeah, so, I mean, there's so many, so many things that caught my eye this week. I'm going to start with one. Everybody in here knows that I'm a huge tennis fan. And so there was an event that happened this last weekend that was sort of a big deal in tennis. So Roger Federer, some consider the greatest of all time, won his 100th title. Now, only two people in the history of men's tennis have won 100 titles. One uh, probably wouldn't surprise people that know a little bit about tennis, and that's Jimmy Connors, the man who played in Toledo. Matter of fact, Jimmy Connors may still be playing for ATP (laughs) titles at age 62, but he won 109 titles. And, of course, Roger Federer just won his 100th title. And the part I was I was thinking about this week was, and, and a big deal was made of it, and of course they should. And then there's the debate about whether Roger Federer is the greatest player of all time. And I love, as people know, I'm both the Hall of Fame guy in baseball, basketball. Like what pant? Obviously, Roger Federer is one of the greatest five players of all time. I don't think there's any debate about that. But I just wanted your opinion, and I, I've had this belief. A lot of people disagree with me. So the two great players of his generation, who would also have to be in the top ten of all time, Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic, Djokovic, they'd have to be. I mean, matter of fact, they're the top three right now in majors. I mean, Nadal, sorry, Federer has 20, Nadal has 17, Djokovic just tied Sampras with 14. So they have the three most all time. So they're in the pant. They're on the Mount Rushmore of tennis. Federer has a statistically as a as a massively losing record against Nadal. Matt can maybe look it up for us, but I'm going to say maybe 23 and 15 for Nadal, and he has a losing record not massively against Djokovic. Now you could argue a lot of that's happened the last 5 years where it's been the 30 something year old Federer against the 20 something year old Nadal and you know, they're 5 years difference, 6 years difference in age, which right. is a you know, when Federer was his greatest, they weren't playing and then when Federer got old, they were their greatest. 
But can he be the greatest? Can you be the greatest of all time if you have a losing record against your peers? I would argue you could. You I think could. Okay. I think you could probably go back and say if the whatever year the 1927 Yankees were the greatest team of all time, they may have had a losing rec- record against the Cincinnati Reds, right? For all we know, right? So I would argue that when you think about the difference in age between some of these players, the fact that you've had three of the all-time greats, because remember, there's a finite, there's only four majors a year. And if you're divvying those up between three different players, think about back in the days when, you know, it was Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe. There was one or well, maybe Connors. two. Connors. Connors, by the way, it's no. not a bad uh, analogy because Connors is essentially five years older than Borg and McEnroe. And so when Connors, Connors won a lot of his majors until Borg and McEnroe came right. around. And then it was harder for Connors to win, but it was a similar situation. I think you could look at Sampras then at his career and that there was really no direct challenger, that he was the best, but he only got to 14 majors. I think when you look at some of the data as it relates to Federer, how many times he made it to the majors, how many times he won in straight sets. Um, I think that um, the data would prove it. And there's always going to be an outlier in data, right? You know this. It's not the statistical mean. It's not always going to be perfect. And I think there is always an outlier. Someone's got a number. Maybe someone has a harder time versus lefties or this guy's stronger or younger. Um, but I, I still would, uh, I would support the argument that he's the greatest of all time. By the way, uh, Matt, you, Matt, you, I just want to see. You, I want to put you put something up on my screen. How impressive it is that I know exactly Nadal's record against Federer, twenty three and fifteen. Thank you, Matt. I'd like tweet that on Wharton Moneyball. Eric Bradlow's memory at e Bradlow's memory is impressive on this. Djokovic is twenty five and twenty two against uh, Federer. Let me ask you a, a related question: When they were at their greatest, who was the greatest? Maybe that's another way to think about it. Let's take the Federer of whatever year you want to say, 2008, 2009. Let's take the Nadal of three or four years, or five, six years ago. Let's take the Djokovic of maybe this year or three years ago. Who would you, you have one match to play? Would you take the greatest Federer, the greatest Nadal, or the greatest Djokovic? And, of course, the answer might depend on what surface you're talking about. Let's eliminate clay because we're not even going to have a discussion. It to Nadal gets yeah, it it's on not clay. even going to discuss it. Let's say it's a match at Wimbledon. Let's say it's a U.S. I don't know. Wimbledon, you might have to say Federer because maybe the greatest grass court player. Let's say the U.S. Open. It's, uh, it's a tough one. I still would have to argue Federer that he was so consistent at his point at his prime, he never dropped serve. He, he he was so stoic in his approach to the game. Nadal was emotional. Djokovic was strong. And um, I still would take him. I, you know, I would make a better argument probably for Serena Williams in her prime than over any other person in their prime. I don't think there's any. I've said many times on this show, I think Serena Williams is the greatest athlete of all. Maybe the greatest athlete of all time, but certainly the greatest tennis player of all time. I don't think there's any. Yeah, if you ask me who's greater, Roger Federer in comparison to Serena Williams I don't think there's a comparison there. No, the data it's it's there. It's a significant difference in the in the in the step level of uh, success and the, the difference between number two or a, a, a comparison. That's well. That's another metric to look at is the distance between number one and two. That's another great thing. So here we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here co-hosting this morning with Dan Schwab, co-president of uh, DNH Dis- Distributing. And uh, if you want to join the conversation, no problem. Just call us. We're at one eight four four Warden. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Our producer Matt Datz is waiting for your call. You can also email us at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. So, Dan, yeah, what else caught your eye in sports? We've covered a little bit of uh, baseball or contracts. We've covered a little bit of tennis. What else caught your eye? Well, it caught my eye, and I think it was really true. You could look at this last week and look at their their losses. 
And now you can almost definitively say, I think the data says 99% chance that LeBron and the Lakers are not going to make the playoffs. So the first time uh, in well over a decade that LeBron will not be in the playoffs. And, and by the way, if you were you know, Denver or some team that's playing them, you do not want to play LeBron in the first round. I don't care how, how much the team limps in the playoffs, right? So without Lonzo Ball, um, which is probably the biggest impact to that team's success, it's amazing how poor they've done without Lonzo and his defense. The fact that LeBron's not going to be in the playoffs, that's just a, I think that's a worth noting in today's marketplace. Yeah, I mean, just for our fans, there's roughly 18, 19 games left in the NBA season. They're five and a half games back, or at least they were as of yesterday. They're five and a half games back, I think, of the San Antonio Spurs that are kind of sitting in the eighth spot. And um, it's going to be tough for them to make the playoffs. I mean, we just do the math. I mean, let's even say a miraculous turnaround happens and they go 14 and four in their last 18 games. There's no data to suggest they will, but let's just suggest they do. Nine and nine for the Spurs kind of gets the job done. And so it's hard to imagine that they're going to make the playoffs. I actually did a little bit of research on LeBron. Okay. Okay. Because I thought you might, I thought anybody might bring up the issue with the Lakers. So if I told you, and this is the difference between I'll call basic statistics and what's now the advanced metrics that we have. So here are LeBron's numbers for this year. Okay. He's averaging 27.2 points per game, 8.1 assists. And 8.7 rebounds. So I'll say that again for our listeners. 27.2 points, 8.1 assists, and 8.7 rebounds. And just to give you a historical, his historical averages are 25.3 points. So he's 1.9 above. 6.7 assists. So he's 1.4 above. And 6.9 rebounds. So he's 1.8 above. You would agree, Dan, by every historical measure, He's having a very good season. Sure. Almost averaging a triple-double with over 25 points a game. Right. Okay. So now let me give you some advanced metrics. Okay. So one of the things they do, not just in basketball, but in most sports, is what's called value above replacement. Mm -hmm. So his value above replacement is 4.0 games, which is his lowest by almost 50% since his rookie year. Second, his box score plus minus, so when he's on the court versus not is the third lowest in his career. His win shares per 48 minutes, so when he's on the floor, how much extra probability of winning. If we just think every minute he's on the floor, he adds some probability to them winning a game, and let's add it up over all his minutes, but let's norm it to a 48-minute game because he may be playing a different number of minutes, is the second lowest of his career. His defensive win share, which is what a lot of people have been saying, when you get old, you can either play offense or defense. It's hard to play both is the lowest of his career. His player efficiency rating, which is how much does he score efficiently when he's on the court, is the second lowest of his career. So here's my question. Is LeBron James having a good year? We just said, in terms of the basic metrics, points, rebounds, assists, he's well above his historical averages. But it's value above replacement, box score plus minus, win shares, defensive win shares, player efficiency ratings are all in the bottom two or three years, if not the lowest of his career. What do you think? Um, I think this is the whole, uh, you have to make the argument about the environment, right? That the, the data says one thing, but when you look at the circumstances, so he's not being surrounded by any other all-stars. So the first time in his career, he doesn't have an all-star shoulder to shoulder with him or two 
All Stars or potential Hall of Famers. So when you look at, at least st- since the early Cleveland days, when we're like, how did that team get to the finals? It's LeBron and you and me playing. It's uh, it was impossible that he did that pretty much when he did that uh, early in his career. But when you look at the efficiency rating, efficiency rating is a that's a barometer of the people that are around you, right? I think he absolutely. I watched a game not too long ago where he scored tw- literally scored twenty some points, and it looked like he wasn't trying. Because I think he's letting, trying to help the other, but he knows he's not going to go anywhere unless he raises the average, right? Unless as he raises the team, their ability to play together, other people to rise to the occasion. So he plays more of a mentorship role, I believe, today in his career. And also, he is aged, right? He's, he's saying that if I'm going to go in the playoffs, we saw what, take, what he puts into the playoffs. So I think there is a little bit of pacing it during the year. Um, I think if you put him in for one game, I think he's you know he would show you that he's oh. just as good as he was three years ago. I think he's he's looking at the environment today, and I think that there's an impact. The data shows that he can score, he can pass, he can rebound with the best of them. If he if, if he wanted to have a triple double this year, he would absolutely do that. Oh, I think that's for sure. So we have a call. We have let's go to the phone lines. We have Bill from L.A. and what better person and what better city to have someone calling in from, given our discussion of LeBron James. So Bill, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host Dan Schwab. Thank you. Yeah, great topic. Yeah, I live uh, down here in the Los Angeles area, and everyone's up in arms regarding uh, the Lakers this season, especially not making the playoffs and the way they uh, performed down the stretch here. They really folded, and it seems like a lot of it's going to be on Walton's head, and they're talking about letting him go You know, once the season ends, and uh, the rumor is that Ty Lue is the guy they're going to bring in, but we'll see. So, Bill, let me ask you a question. Um, how do you think about it? I mean, is it, as Dan and I have been describing, you know, he's not really surrounded by all-stars. He was also injured for 18 games. If we had, you know, they were seen to be trending in the right direction. I think they were number five in the West before he got injured. So, Bill, how do you think about that? Do you think it was injuries? Do you think it was, maybe it's Magic Johnson's fault. They didn't put the right team around him. Yeah. How do you think about it? Yeah, it's multifactorial, like most of these things, especially the NBA, you know, the length of the season. I don't think there's any excuse for them not to make the playoffs. A lot of it rests on Magic, too. I mean, they claim he lost the locker room when he tried to orchestrate that trade. You know, they, a lot of the younger guys were uh, you know, hurt over they felt they neglected and not wanted. There's a lot about chemistry, especially in basketball. And you guys have a great show. It's also tennis. I'm on my way driving out to Indian Wells right now. That tournament started on uh, Monday. And that's a phenomenal tournament. I went to it last year for the first time. It's a special ambiance and the guy uh, Larry Ellis runs it he's doing a phenomenal job and hopefully one day uh, that'll be on the major well Bill first of all thank you for your call it's great to have you join us here on Wharton Moneyball and you too can join in just like Bill did by calling 1-844-WHARTON that's 1-844-942-7866 what a perfect caller not only is he from the Los Angeles area and he could talk about LeBron from a hometown perspective but the guy's driving to the big tournament this week Indian Wells which by the way just so people know, it's not a major, but I'm pretty sure it's a Masters 1000 event, which is the level just below the major. And, um, you know, it's a big event. All the big players will be there. It, it is arguably the fifth major. Like, it's viewed as that level of a tournament, and it's on the rise. I would be curious to ask Bill if he thought, who makes the decision to uh, to hire the uh, to hire the next coach? Is it going to be LeBron, or is it Magic that makes the decision on the coach? Because that, that's a very... Yeah, Bill, go ahead. LeBron will have a lot of input. I mean, you know, he, he's the dog that, you know, wags the tail. I mean, tail that wags the dog. You know what I mean? Nothing's going to happen on that team without it going through him. Agreed. I, I mean, I, it's been that way in Cleveland. I don't think it would be any different here in Los Angeles. But, well, uh, you know, 
All right. Well, Bill, thank you for again for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Enjoy the uh, tennis at Indian Wells. So, yeah, I mean, again, I think I agree with you. I think what LeBron has done is to say, look, I mean, this is kind of an interesting discussion. LeBron, could LeBron be putting in more effort? Yes and no. It depends what you mean. Could he be putting in more effort so that his numbers look even remarkably better than they are on some dimensions? Of course he could. But I think he realizes if he goes to the playoffs and they lose in the first round, they don't have the squad. Let's be honest. Right. They're not beating Golden State. Not a chance. Not a chance. And they're not, I don't even think, they're, they're not beating Denver. And let me tell you, if you look at what's going on in the Western Conference right now, don't be the number six seed because I'm going to tell you, the Houston Rockets. They're dangerous. I mean, yeah. they're dangerous. I mean, they. I watched a lot of the game last night. They easily handled a very good Toronto team in Toronto. Yep. They. If you also remember this week, they beat Golden State. And that, you know, again, that was extraordinarily impressive. As a matter of fact, as we all know, they haven't lost to Golden State this year. So, I. by the way, if you ask me right now, I know it's going to be heresy when I'm saying love your reaction. I think Houston is the favorite in the Western Conference right now. I mean, Matt Das has put his hands over his uh, head. He said, I can't believe it. We're going to cut that out of the tape. Mm-hmm. Danielle Bruno, our sound engineer and associate producer, says, I'm not putting that piece up on iTunes. And, you know, I'm not going to even post that. I think Houston's the favorite in the West. What do you think about that? I think you're wrong. I, okay, there we go. There, that's think, why we have a discussion I think show. You, I think you should post it on Twitter because you'll get a lot of good visceral reactions. Matt, uh, post that up there on <laughs> at Morton, at W Moneyball right now. Um, I think the argument is the death. I mean, in any given game in a regular season, James Harden is the best player in the NBA when he wants to be. Uh, he's almost virtually unstoppable. When he wants to play team ball, they're that much better team. But I just think Golden State, uh, when they get to the playoffs, just like LeBron, LeBron was able to do it, they've been able to take it to another level. And I think the depth of their team, adding Boogie Cousins, adding um, a lot of players, is really uh, – it'd be hard to argue because this is, in some respects, their swan song, right? Who knows what this team's going to look like? This could very well be their swan song. And also, you know, one of the things I've talked about on this show in the last couple of years is they're – and just because the number of games they've played and the physicality, they're an old group of 30-year-olds. Right. I mean – Steph Curry, maybe 31. Klay Thompson is actually injured right now. Kevin Durant, great. I mean, no one's doubting he's one of the great players in NBA history. But he's played a lot of minutes. You know, at some point, the minutes have to catch up with you. Andre Guadalla is not the defensive player that he was. You know, uh, Draymond Green seems to be, something seems to be going on. I'm sure he'll turn it on in the playoffs. But, I mean, his numbers look horrendous. I, th- I think you've seen this play out before, that great teams, when they've won a championship or two, how they view the regular season, whether it's That's San Antonio resting players or other teams, I think there's an analogy to be drawn there that when the chips are on the table, um, each, each regular season game is not as critical as it was when they were trying to break the record for the most regular season wins, or they had not won a title, or they had not won a title with um, Kevin Durant. I think that passion has just been tempered somewhat. The one thing I will say is, and I've said this a couple times here on Morton Moneyball, I believe, maybe you disagree with this, I think if Chris Paul doesn't get injured at the end of Game 5 last year in the Western Conference Finals, Houston wins. Absolutely. And, well, yep. And I think Houston's gotten better as a team. I think Houston's improved as a team, and I don't think, I mean, if you want to argue Boogie Cousins has made Golden State better, it's, the data doesn't actually suggest that, no. but when when crunch time comes, it's hard to argue Boogie Cousins isn't better to have on your team than JaVal McGee. <laughs> so I think that's certainly true. We're thrilled to have on the show Tom Haberstroh. Uh, for those of you that don't know Tom, although if you follow sports and analytics, that would be almost impossible, he's the NBC Sports National NBA Insider, the host of the Haber Show podcast. He's an expert in NBA analytics, sports science, and player 
health. Tom, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Dan Schwab. Hey, Eric. Uh, hey, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, Tom, it's great to have you back here on Wharton Moneyball. So we can just dive right in since two topics Dan and I were talking about in the first half hour are related to topics I know you've written about and thought about a lot recently. Let's start with the Lakers. So what is your thought on the Lakers this year? Um, is it injuries that have cost them? Is it the roster? And also, we were just having a debate. Is LeBron James having a good season? Because basic stats say yes, but advanced metrics say maybe no. So how, how do you think about it, and what do you see going on with the Lakers? Well, when you say that LeBron is not having a good season, are you saying by his standard or just in general? Yeah, good question. We're saying by his <laughs> – yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, this is the second or third worst LeBron season <laughs> oh, of okay. the great LeBron seasons that he's had. So, yeah, we're, I was just comparing it to the other 15 consecutive unworldly great LeBron seasons. Yes, okay. Just had to make sure because I was, I was sitting here being like, man, am I missing something here? Because <laughs> LeBron is still pretty darn good. Um, but I, you know what? You're right. Is this this is kind of confounding? Is a LeBron James team missing the playoffs? And I think uh, we get a little carried away with the idea that like when things are going poorly, our brains are not good at finding nuance or not good at finding or doing work. Like the doing the work part is really hard for us. So what we do is we say, okay, I know about LeBron James, and so uh, it must be him, right? Well, um, it's not quite so simple that LeBron is having a down year and he's not playing defense and uh, it's, it's all because of him. Actually, there's a big number video coming out later today on NBC Sports that um, I think is hitting this topic square on. And I think I, I'll, I'll give you guys the scoop, okay? So, that would be great. Uh, LeBron James is really good at basketball and his team does really good at basketball when he plays on the floor. I mean, that's not shocking. He's really good. Uh, but when you look at the plus minus data with LeBron James, he has a positive impact. And what I mean by that is his plus minus is positive. He outscores opponents. His team, the Lakers, outscores opponents when he's on the floor with just about every teammate of his. Kyle Kuzma, he's played for 1,200 minutes. And he's a plus 82. Josh Hart, he's played for um, 649 minutes with LeBron, and the team is plus 71. You go on down the line. Lonzo Ball, JaVale McGee, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Brandon Ingram. They play tons of minutes with LeBron James, and they've all, in those minutes, while those two players, any pair you look at with LeBron, they're plus. So they're a good team no matter what when LeBron James is on the floor, except for one player. And that player is a guy that the Miami Heat played against for a long time. And maybe it had a contributing factor to him, you know, dislocating his elbow, Rajon Rondo. Okay, so when LeBron James plays with Rajon Rondo, something interesting happens. The Lakers can't score. They cannot score at all. And he is the starting point guard for them right now. And what's fascinating here is it's a minus 55 when LeBron James is playing on the floor with Rajon Rondo this season, and it's the worst offense he's had as a pairing. So he and another teammate, what is their offensive rating? How many points do they score for 100 possessions? It is the worst pairing in six years for LeBron James with Rajon Rondo. Now, what do, so you what do you attribute that to? Because, you know, they're both obviously high assist guys. Maybe the theory, I'd love to hear your thoughts, is, that, well, neither one of them. I mean, LeBron's a reluctant shooter, and we know Rajon Rondo really can't shoot. Is, is that the cause, or is it something deeper than that? 
I think the best thing about LeBron James is him with the ball in his hands. And Rajon Rondo takes the ball out of his hands. And, yes, he does get a lot of assists. But outside of that, um, he doesn't necessarily improve your ability to play basketball. Defensively, he's one of the worst defensive players in the NBA. And the offensive side, uh, he's not a great shooter. Um, and he has a high turnover rate considering um, how, how, you know, he's not necessarily – driving and attacking the rim all the time. And so a lot of his mistakes are passing mistakes that lead to fast breaks on the other end. Um, and it's not like he's dribbling the ball off his foot while he gets to the rim and it goes into a dead ball turnover. What happens with Rajon Rondo is the whole offense craters around him because I think uh, Rondo probably, I mean, uh, LeBron probably defers to him as a veteran, as a champion, tries not to do too much. And what you see is, the team just doesn't attack the rim, doesn't get free throws, doesn't get to the three-point line, and it really is a crystallization of what Rajon Rondo is in 2019. He doesn't get to the free throw line. He doesn't shoot a lot of threes. He has been recently, but it, it's a little too uh, it's it's a little uh, too little too late here for the the Lakers season. They haven't been able to maintain with Lonzo Ball being injured. LeBron plays fine with him. Lonzo Ball gets after it defensively. Uh, he's a better shooter than than Rondo, believe it or not. And I think what happens here is uh, LeBron just seeing Rondo as a veteran just kind of takes a step aside, and the whole offense just kind of craters. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Brother, and I'm here with my co-host and friend of the show, Dan Schwab. We're here with Tom Habershow, NBC Sports NBA insider and host of the Habershow podcast. So, Tom, let me ask you a question. The Lakers, since we're an analytics show, the Lakers have to know the same data that you know. So why do you think, is it that they're stubborn? Is it that LeBron loves playing with Rondo? But why don't they say, look, we're going to have Rondo come off the bench. He'll be our, you know, now maybe that was, they had the opportunity to do that if Lonzo Ball was around. Someone needs to play starting point guard. But Tom, how do you think that the Lakers aren't responding to this analytics? Well, I think because I don't know if it's stubbornness or it's trying to make it work. The idea that you should surround LeBron James with playmakers like Lance Stevenson and Rajon Rondo rather than shooters. And that was kind of Magic Johnson's magic potion going into this season was, you know, in years past, LeBron had to do everything. He had to, he had to uh, dribble up the ball. He had to create the offense. He had to do everything offensively. And surround, he was surrounded by shooters who couldn't really get their own shot. So with the Lakers, let's try to flip that and ease the pressure off of LeBron and let's get him, not just with Brandon Ingram, who's a, a pseudo point guard, you know, a point forward, but Lonzo Ball, let's keep him. Let's, uh, let's add Lance Stevenson, Rajon Rondo, and let's ease the burden off of LeBron James. The problem with that theory is that LeBron surrounded by shooters not just improves the shooters, the shooters benefit from that relationship, but LeBron does too. It opens up the passing lanes and it keeps the ball in his hands where he can do the, the, the most damage as a basketball player. So I think the reason why they're keeping Rondo in there uh, and not going with LeBron at point guard and then surrounding himself with shooters is because they're trying to make the whole philosophy work. And in, in, in fact, it's actually plummeting their season. This is uh, Dan speaking. So I, it's really interesting data because, you know, I thought a lot of it had to do with how strong he played with Lonzo and how good a defense Lonzo, uh, Lonzo played uh, despite some of his criticism. But it really is interesting of the, where the data speaks on Rondo. So when you watch a game, given your sports analytics background, how do you look at the game or how do you consume it differently than the average fan given your analytics background? And with that, 
as you look at the rest of the season, as we're closing out the final, uh, you know, dozen and a half games, what are you looking for? What are you interested to follow? Um, you know, is it the battle in the East with the big four teams? What What are you watching, and what is the data that you're interested behind those results? Well, a lot of it is different than it was, you know, five, ten years ago. I think, um, you know, ten years ago, you had to watch every game, stay up late and watch every game, um, even though your brain is shut down and it's fried from a day's work, uh, and you lose some of that information um, unless you're taking really strong notes. I think a lot of the times you're uh, the, the data or the information that goes into your brain late at night when you're run down, uh, it doesn't really sink in. Um, I don't think you retain much of that information. I found myself, you know, watching a few games and then losing a lot of that, that insight. And so what I do now is I'll watch a bunch of games during the night, but I'll just zip around the league and I'll try to see something from every time that I watch and, and take note as something to research and go further. So it's almost like I'm trying to find ideas rather than trying to find information like, is this guy actually good? Because you're only watching like a few minutes of a guy's a game. Sure. And so if you take that three minutes and say, that guy's good, that's a lot of confirmation bias there. So what I like to do is just find little trinkets. Like if a player uh, is really attacking the offensive boards or if he's, uh, you know, when, when one player steps on the floor, he suddenly doesn't want to play anymore or he doesn't put a lot of effort, I take down notes uh, and then I research it uh, on my computer and watching film. And so like Synergy and when I was at ESPN, it was Second Spectrum. You get to just choose any sort of type of, you know, play in the game and just watch 100 clips of it. So instead of saying, I'm going to watch the Lakers-Celtics game tonight, you could sit down at your computer and say, I want to watch every single time Rajon Rondo's on the floor with LeBron James and the ball is in LeBron's hand. What does LeBron do with that? And that kind of arms you with so much more analytical power because you can cut out all the fat. You don't have to wait around for that situation to happen. And you can just watch that game. And that game meaning just like one split, something you're really interested in. Uh, Or if you wanted to say, okay, I want to see every time that Steph Curry pulls up for a 30-footer, what happens to the offensive rebound rate? Do they get rebounds at a higher rate? Because that's my sneaking suspicion, and I'm writing about it this week, is that Players who take longer threes are, are getting those offensive rebounds at a higher rate because the ball is ricocheting further away from the basket, and we're having a tough time as, as human beings learning that, like, hey, normally when I box out for rebounds, I'm right by the basket. But a lot of times when you have these high-velocity shots coming from 30, 35 feet away that are increasing today in today's game, the ball's falling all the way out, ricocheting all the way out to the free-throw line. Should I be changing the way I box out? Great question. And I think – and, and so now you're seeing the data like, oh, yeah, you're, you're onto something. So those little things where uh, the game is increasingly changing before eyes, but what is the step back three? Can that work in the playoffs? Uh, you know, when Ben Simmons isn't doing well against really good teams, what does that tell you? Well, it might tell you something about how the playoff games change and slow down, and so you don't have those fast-break opportunities where he thrives. And so in a slow-it-down half-court game, how can Ben Simmons get better? Ooh, he's shooting more. So I think this is a, you know, I'm always trying to predict the future, and that's really hard work. And I think one of the things that we get stuck on is watching the game the same way as we did five years ago, and, you're, and, and you don't actually look at, okay, how is the game changing, and what does that mean for five months from now? From five years from now, what will we be talking about? And that's kind of where I try to carve out my space is, what are we going to be talking about? Not today, but in a few months. And so I have, I'm already equipped to talk about that. 
So we're here on Wharton Moneyball talking to Tom Habershow, the NBC Sports National NBA Insider and host of the Habershow podcast. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Tom, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Tom, maybe just kind of a rapid fire round, because i got like a thousand questions to ask you, so maybe just a quick response to each of these. You First of all, let me start with the first one. You have to act as the tiebreaker here to bring sanity to these <laughs> other people that don't really understand the NBA like you and me. If you had to bet right now, who do you like in the West, the Warriors or the Rockets? Now, come on. You have to break the tie here. Warriors or Rockets? We'd love your opinion. Warriors. Warriors. Next question. <laughs> Holy moly. Oh, my God. I'm on the wrong side that, of this. I guess I'm on the wrong side of this one. That took a long time. All right. There we go. I, I've actually liked the Rockets right now, but either way, um, I've got the world against me. All right. Let's move on to another team in the West. Are the Denver Nuggets for real? Can they actually – do, do they have any chance, or are we talking – you know, what would be your rank order in the West? Would it be clearly Warriors for you? Is it Warriors, Rockets, OKC, and then Denver, or where do you put Denver? That's a great question, and I think people are, uh, you know, just eliminating Portland from the conversation because it's just Portland. It's the same team every year, and I just feel like I saw them beat up on the Sixers the other day. I was here at the game, and let me tell you, that team had no trouble handling the Sixers. (laughs) Right, right. Um, You know, I think I think OKC is my second favorite team in the Western Conference. Uh, I think because they have two way players in Stephen Adams and Paul George, and Russell Westbrook, of course, is just a, a beast to deal with. Uh, but I love their defense, and I love their ability to offensive rebound, which really hits Golden State at their Achilles heel, no, no pun intended, maybe a little bit of a pun intended there. Because <laughs> DeMarcus Cousins, when he's out on the lineup, uh, they've been outscored with the starting lineup, minus two this season, which is absurd to think about. All NBA teams should not be outscored. Um, in, an, in a regular NBA So how do you game. explain that, that? Most of us thought when, you know, they got Boogie Cousins, we're like, this is Boogie Cousins not- already joining. This is like the, you know, the all-star squad. And, you know, he's replacing JaVal McGee. Like, how can uh, Warriors not be much better? So how are you seeing Boogie Cousins right now? Uh, well, just like I said, the the defense rebounding of that lineup is the worst in the NBA. They allow 33% of the opponent's offensive, you know, the, the defensive rebound rate is 67%, which means that 33% of the time their opponent is getting their offensive rebound, and that's a horrible number. Uh, I think it just is a laziness. Um, I think it's just a little bit of apathy. His regular season, you know what, Boogie Cousins will go and get it. But he doesn't really have that kind of jumping ability, quick jumps like he did before. So asking Boogie to get all the defensive rebounds is not a smart plan. So um, I think that's where OKC can really hurt them. So i probably put – Golden State, I think they have another gear or two um, it, for the playoff run. I'll probably go OKC, Houston, uh, Portland, then Denver. I, I don't know about Nikola Jokic in the playoffs. And then I have Utah right there with them. So let's, uh, this is Dan. How about let's flip to the East? You know, How do you handicap the teams in the East as we're heading towards the playoff run? I love Philly. If they're healthy, I think they're the best team in the East. I really do. I think the, the big five there. Um, when the when the rotations shrink in the playoffs and you're you're hoping to rely on your stars a lot more, they just have more star power than any other East team. Uh, and I and I worry about Toronto's ability to play without Kawhi. I know they have a good record in the regular season, but when scouting reports happen in the postseason, uh, and teams just are able to uh, outsmart each other and it becomes more of a chess game, I just worry about Kawhi Leonard and the fact that he had nine games played all year last year and his ability to hold up for an entire postseason. Uh, that worries me. So I got I got Philly number one, Milwaukee number two, Toronto three, 
uh, and Boston number four, uh, Indiana right behind them. So you're not worried, just uh, as a season ticket holder of the Sixers, you're not worried that our bench is Boban Marjanovic, Mike Scott, TJ McConnell, uh, Bolden, um, I don't even know, I'll try to name some more guys on the team that I, I can't even think about right now. That doesn't concern you at all. We have a great starting five, but you're just you're thinking that the rotation will only be seven or eight in the playoffs and therefore it won't make a big deal? Yeah, I mean, it's not that I don't worry. It's just every other team has things I worry about more. Well, that's that's pretty good. I, I certainly, I, I hope you are right. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about LeBron and how great he is. Well, there's another player this year that has been great for the last four or five years, and people have different perspectives on how great he is, and that's Anthony Davis. I'd love to get your perspective, because by the numbers, Anthony Davis is a game-changing, maybe generational type of player. Do you see him that way? Where do you see, what do you see happening with him? You know, is he going to stay with the Pelicans? That seems unlikely at this point. How do you see it? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, if you look at the numbers, uh, just from a lineup data, we've been talking a lot about that because it kind of, it kind of speaks to, you know, are your numbers just hollow? Are your box score numbers hollow? Um, and I think a lot of people thought that same way about Kevin Love in, in Minnesota. And then he goes to Cleveland and he goes and wins a championship, and it's not like uh, he was the same player, but he was still able to impact the games in a positive way enough to win a championship with LeBron. So Anthony Davis, if he is surrounded by All-Stars, that's a championship player. Uh, if he is not surrounded by All-Stars, that's a playoff team. And I think with Drew Holiday next to him, uh, they're a sensational team. The problem is they have no depth there in, in New Orleans. And so uh, it's just really hard for them to win night in, night out in the regular season, especially when Anthony Davis goes to the bench. And I think he ends up in Boston. I think Kyrie Irving stays. That's the um, that's probably the, the safest bet for me. I know it probably doesn't seem that way right now. Uh, probably didn't seem that way yesterday before they just destroyed the Golden State Warriors. But I really do think that um, at the end of the day, they will make the, the Pelicans will make the best trade that's for them. Uh, not for the Lakers or anybody else, but they won't make a deal unless it makes a lot of sense for them. And I think Boston has the best opportunity to switch things up and keep Kyrie in there and, and dominate the East going forward. So, Tom, we only have about two minutes left, so let me ask you maybe one final question. You had the Celtics ranked fourth. So last year they made it to Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. You could argue that was obviously without Gordon Haywood and without Kyrie Irving. Um, they've added back those two players, if you'd like. What do you see going on with the Celtics, and why don't you see them necessarily as the favorites in the East? Or is it that you just think that the other three teams have gotten better? Certainly the Sixers have added a lot of star power. Toronto added quite Leonard, you know, the Bucks, you know, have either gotten players or just, you know, the Greek freak is just what he is. Um, so do you think the Celtics haven't improved or the other teams have just improved more? Uh, the other teams have just improved more. I mean, if they were the, if, if the Toronto didn't get Kawhi Leonard, if, if the Milwaukee Bucks didn't switch coaches and add Nico Miritich and Brooke Lopez, if, if, uh, if, if, um, if Philly didn't add two all-star caliber players, yeah, Boston would be at the top of my list. But Again, if, if I'm ranking one through four, maybe Boston's at the fourth position, but that doesn't mean that I don't like them. I think we have this idea in our heads that because they're fourth doesn't mean uh, that we like them. But really, I, I think it's one, 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 one. Like that's probably more, more um, realistic is that they're all so close together and it's really hard for me to pick. But if, I think it's all splitting hairs with those top four teams. So even though I have, I have Boston ranked fourth there, does not mean I don't think that they can win a championship. I absolutely do. I just worry about their consistency, especially with Gordon Hayward. If he plays that way every night, they're going to be in the NBA Finals. I, I promise you that. They're going to get there because that is the difference maker. 
you know, when he scored 30 points earlier this season, like 35 points, the game before that he scored zero, okay? If he gets any sort of consistency game to game, a week after he scored 35, he, was, he couldn't get out of single-digit scoring. So if he can continue to do this, you know, be a 20-point scorer going forward for, for the Celtics, they're going to be in the NBA Finals against the Warriors. Well, Tom, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Tom Haberstow. He's the NBC Sports National NBA Insider, the host of the Haberstow Podcast. He's obviously an expert in NBA analytics. So, Tom, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an interesting comment that he made about Gordon Haywood uh, in our last few seconds here. I was at the Sixers-Celtics game this year where Haywood could not miss. And I was thinking to myself, I mean... I mean, I mean, I couldn't miss, and he couldn't be covered. Yeah, but look at the flip side. They beat Golden State in Golden State last night. He had 30 points, and they looked like a great team, the team that we thought they were going to be this year, but they haven't shown up so far on, on, on average throughout the games. I mean, one of the things, Dan, I'm sure we'll talk about in the last half hour of our show is, and we talk about this all the time on Wharton Moneyball, is it's when you have as much talent as the Celtics have, you can afford to have a bunch of high-variance players. You just need a couple of them to play good on any given night, and they're actually likely to win the game. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We've uh, had our open segment, what caught our eye in sports. We've been talking to Tom Haberstroh. We have a great guest after the break, Neil Greenberg. So please stay with us for the second half of Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with our my co-host this morning, Dan Schwab, co-president of DNH Distri- Distributing, and also a friend of the show. And so we've had we're done with the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We've got a great second half to go, and we're thrilled to be joined in our next segment by Neil Greenberg. Neil is a staff writer with the Washington Post, whose beat is sports analytics. What better job than that? Uh, his analysis and insight can be found on the Fancy Stats blog, where he covers all pro sports, as well as college football, college basketball, etc. Uh, Neil, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Dan Schwab. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me back, guys. How you doing? We're doing fantastic this morning. And uh, well, let me ask you. So let's start right at the beginning. You know, we're sitting here at the beautiful Wharton School, right in Philadelphia, the home of Bryce Harper, as we like to say now. Um, could you talk about? I mean, Dan and I talked about it a little bit in the first half hour, but what was your thought about the Bryce Harper deal, his contract with the Phillies? How do you see it as someone that kind of has a more objective outsider analytics perspective? Um, I thought it was a deal that, um, from a baseball perspective, was pretty good for Philadelphia. They needed they needed to get a little bit more power in their lineup to help them compete in the NL East with um, the, the Nationals and the Atlanta Braves. Um, and they also, more importantly, probably need, they needed a left-handed batter because they have a bunch of right-handed hitting. Uh, so I think that he slots in the lineup really well. He hits very well at um, his new home park. Um, so I think from a baseball perspective, it was probably the exact player that the Phillies needed. Um, I do think that there's a lot of risk in signing a guy like Harper because he, in my opinion, his his uh, his gravitas is probably a little bit more than what you actually get on the field. Um, you look at, of course, everyone looks at the 2015 unanimous NLVP campaign and says, all right, well, that's the guy that we're getting. But he hasn't really been anywhere close to that since. So I think $330 million over 13 years um, is perhaps a little bit of an overpay, um, and it's something that uh, could derail pretty quickly only because 
in terms of on-the-field type production. Um, he's a very good player, just not a great elite player that's warning uh, the largest baseball contract of all time. That's an interest- It's interesting that you say that, because I think the data bears out what you say. Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about this, Neil. Um, in the second half of last season, the first half was an awful half. The second half of last season, he was the 300-hitting, power-hitting Bryce Harper. Um, at worst case, a lot of Philadelphia fans are saying, well, the guy's got almost a 400 on-base percentage. Since we're the show Wharton Moneyball, you know, on-base percentage is one of the key drivers. So how do you view, like, do you see in a worst case, we're at least getting a guy with a really high on-base percentage, we're getting a very productive hitter. At worst case, we're getting a very good player, maybe not an elite player. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I mean, there's, he's definitely a, a very good player. Um, but... Like you said, I mean, batting two fourteen in the first half, um, you know, being being subject to the shift quite often. I think that that um, sapped a lot of his power, um, especially in in the early goings. Um, you know, you you look at the NL East and you look at how tight it is with Washington. Um, you look at how the Mets have improved. You look at what Atlanta did last year, and then you look at the Phillies. Um, you know, they can't really afford to have Bryce Harper be the guy that had an 833 OPS during the first half of the season last year, right? They just right. they just can't afford that. Um, so it very well, you know, you, you have the surge in the second half, and that's great, but how far behind are you at that point? And, you know, you look at Bryce Harper's career, there's typically – uh, a month in June or July that he has a little bit of struggles in June this year. You know, he was creating runs that was 14% lower than the league average. Um, so, you know, you, you run into those type of situations, and it could have very real effects on the, the NL East race, could have very real effects on the playoff chase. So, you know, that's been kind of my argument with Bryce Harper over the past, you know, year or so, which is he's, he's inconsistent. And he's a a good to very good, but not great player. And um, you know, like I said, to commit that much money to him is uh, is a risk. And uh, we're gonna we won't know until after the contract's over how good of a risk or how bad of a risk it is. But um, you know, to me, I think that uh, the Philadelphia fans could uh, be in for a little bit of a roller coaster. Well, Neil, this is Dan. You, when you think about Harper and how it's hard to maybe evaluate someone that has such an such an outlier year at such a young age when he had that four fifty on base percentage. And then you look at it maybe in comparison that they talk about Mike Trout being a Philly guy and had a 460 on base percentage, right? Aside from Trout and Harper, that hasn't happened in over a decade. I think the last 450 on base percentage was in 2008. It was Chipper Jones um, and uh, also Albert Poulos that same year. So when you look at the data, uh, and we all know there's risk, right? There was a big contract, and clearly the end of the contract will not be a great return on their investment. Uh, how, if, if these players are worth $300 million – on average, the three players that recently signed for about a, a decade each. What kind of value would you put on someone like a Mike Trout? I, you know, I asked that question yesterday. Um, all the money. I mean, I really don't know <laughs> all the money. What, the, what the right answer is. Because, you know, it's a little bit unfair to compare any player to Mike Trout because Mike Trout has been this dominant player just every year. And, you know, if he was in a big market team or an East Coast team, he'd he would be – he would be the next Babe Ruth in terms of just popularity and just overall everything for baseball. I think, you know, being on the Angels and them not having as much success as as they would like for sure. Um, I don't want to say Mike Chalk gets lost, but I, I certainly think that he's underappreciated for, for what he's been doing. Um, so, 
you know, to answer your question, I mean, he's going to be a little bit older when he comes up in free agency in, what, 2020. Right. So that's going to change the calculus a little bit. Um, but... You know, you, haven't you seen his free agency's already started? Uh, Bryce Harper's already recruiting him. Yeah, I, I was a. I mean, I I get, I get what Bryce Harper was doing there, but um, I think the the league and I know the Angels already are not happy with with what happened. Um, but yeah, I look. I think that we'd have to talk about something north of four hundred million over ten years for Mike Trout, right? I mean, I think that right. uh, considering what he's done and the consistency that he's done it. Um, you know he's he's certainly going to to break a new record if and when he becomes a free agent. And uh, I think I agree with that. And I'm going to ask you to seg- segue down a little bit when talking March Madness because this is the time of the year. The next two weeks, we are all going to spend a lot of time uh, looking up uh, what team uh, records are, how they did against other players. It's the best time. And there's a lot of bracket busters that are out there. And when you look at it, you probably look at it from a more analytical mind than the average fan, right, that has passion. And, well, Indiana's always good, right? So they're going to beat this team. So when you look at it, what what do you believe is a recipe for either a bracket buster or success this time of year? You've got to look for teams that create extra possessions. And I built uh, – I don't want to say I built a whole model around this, but I look at teams – that are able to create turnovers and that are able to dominate the offensive rebounds because those are extra possessions. So when you have teams like that, like a team like um, you know New Mexico State that can that can generate as many as seven extra possessions per game, you know that's that's enough to tilt the scales in in their favor. Now maybe you know they're projected to be a 13 seed, so maybe they're not going to. To, to, to make it all the way to the Final Four, but you know, being able to, to now in on a, on a 13 seed like that that could win one or even two games does a lot to differentiate your bracket from others in the pool, and that's really key when you're looking at the, a March Madness pool, right? Because everyone's going to know about Duke, everyone's going to know about Tennessee, everyone's going to know about Michigan State, but it's, it's a little bit early in the bracket that you find some of those value plays, and I think you know, the teams that can create extra possessions are the ones that have the best chance to upset early in the early rounds. And I think the teams that rely too much on the three-point shot are those teams that tend to be vulnerable because there's so much um, variability in terms of their scoring, right? You go cold one night, and if you're relying more on the three-point shot and they're not falling, you know, you're going to have a big problem. We saw that last year in um, the first round when UMBC as a 16th seed upset a number one seed for the first time in Virginia. Um, so those are the, the two things I look at. And if we see both in the same bracket, well, that's great. That makes an easy decision. But by and large, I look for teams that can create extra possessions via rebounds and turnovers. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking to Neil Greenberg. Neil is a staff writer at the Washington Post whose beat is sports analytics. If you have a question for me or Dan or Neil, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email questions to our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at at WMoneyball. Actually, Neil, I want to talk to you about this idea of extra possessions because, you know, one of the theorems we always talk about in basketball is three is worth a lot more than two. As a matter of fact, we know exactly how much more About about 50% About 50% more. We know exactly how much more it is. But, you know, I just did a little bit of math. Let's just imagine a team takes 80 shots in a game and they hit 40 of them. Well, that's obviously 50%. But if a team gets 7 to 10 extra shots in a game and 90 and hits 40, now they only have to shoot 44%. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, I completely agree with you, extra possessions are 
No. The theorem is if you have to shoot 50% and I have to shoot low 40s, I like my chances over a long period of time. So could you talk a little bit more about what you've shown with extra possessions? Because I completely agree. Yeah, and it's um, it's something that I've looked at over the the past couple of years, and I've and it um, it was actually it was actually substantiated by some of the coaches that I spoke to. I did an article I want to say like maybe three years ago on why the twelve seeds were were so prolific at upsetting the five seeds, and I and I spoke to some of the the coaches that actually pulled that off, and that was the common theme for for all of them. Um, so I looked in it, into it more, and you know, just like you said, being able you have you have a higher margin of error because you don't have to be as good, right? And that's you know, you look at the flip side with a team like Virginia, who is one of the top teams in the country, but their whole mon- their whole modus modus operandi is to slow the game down. So when you slow the game down, you don't have as many possessions. You have to be that much more efficient. Um, and that's another reason why we saw the upset last year. They didn't. They just. They weren't efficient on the the low amount of possessions that they do have, and they weren't good at getting the extra possessions that they needed to win. So, um, you know, being able to to get second chance points on a rebound. I know you guys were talking about. You know how how much a three point shot is worth versus a two point shot, but even a putback's worth probably what one point two points per attempt. So it's it's a relatively efficient shot in terms of not only you get the extra possession, but you're also able to convert at um, you know a, a higher rate than perhaps some of the other types of shots that you take. Um, and then of course turnovers has the the added benefit of stopping a possession at one end, but then creating a possession at the other end. So, you know, I think when you look at those two things, they really do. I don't want to say they have a multiplier effect necessarily, but they certainly add up very quickly, especially for a team looking to make an upset. Well, so how do you think about when you think about the NCAA tournament? You know, to win the whole thing, you need to win six games. You know, winning one game is nice, especially UMBC and being a bracket buster, um, but. How do you think about the analytics when you're saying, well, like, can you count on extra possessions for enough games? You've always, you've already said, you know, if you're really based purely on three point shooting, it's hard to base that on six games. What have you found is kind of a consistent recipe that not only allows a team maybe to win one game, but possibly go for the long haul? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily look at it that way. What I do is I simulate. I start simulating the the tournament probably late February. So I start simulating the tournament. I use a consensus bracket, and then I start to look at which teams have a chance to go forward. And I don't necessarily look at a team. I don't really look at a team and say, okay, this team, you know, Duke can win six games, and here's why. I look at, well, Duke's expected to win the tournament in my in my model 22% of the time. So is that more or less than I think the public's going to do it, right? Because I have to, when I'm looking to win a pool, I know that I'm going to be up against maybe as much as 100, and if I'm entering a pool like ESPN or CBS or something, maybe millions. So my bracket needs to have value. So I look at what's this team's projected rate of advancing this far, and how does that compare with both what that seed has done in the past, but also what the, what the public perceives. So, like right now, I'll give you an example. I like Michigan State as kind of like a dark horse national champion because I think they have about a 10% chance to win. They're going to be a two seed. I'd be surprised if 10% of public brackets have them going the whole way. Now, does that mean I think that Michigan State is like the the rock-solid pick to win? No, but I think that it gives me enough value and enough differentiation that if I'm right... Uh 
then I think that um, I have a pretty good pick there. So, Neil, you've used lots of words. I just want to bring out to our fans here on Morton Moneyball, and I'd love your perception of it. Notice what you just said at the end is great statistical thinking. You didn't say Michigan State is the favorite to win. You said they're, they've got value, and then you used another word, which is really important, which is differentiation, which is, um, and I'd love to hear how when you're filling out your bracket, you think about that. In other words, why would you pick out the bracket that everyone else is going to pick? Because number one, um, favorites lose sometimes, and second, the value of it is really low. So you can tell me, how do you balance differentiation with, on the other hand, I really think this team is going to win? How do you think about that? Well, in the the I look for upsets in the early rounds. I don't go too crazy with upsets because the higher seed is going to win about 70% of the time throughout the bracket. Um, so I'm, I'm looking first at what teams do I think could pull off an upset in the first two rounds, make it to the Sweet 16. And then from there, I'm really comparing – how often I think, um, you know, their win – what, what I think about their win percentage versus, as I said, what the public might think. Um, so, you know, it really just comes down to, to value. It comes down to matchups. It comes down to the path through the bracket. Um, you know, a team like Nevada is getting a lot of shine um, in terms of being like, you know, one of these mid-major teams that, could, that can make a pretty decent run. And that's true. I think they have a ton of value going into the Final Four, but they're also widely talked about. So I, I almost need to see like what the public thinks. I know ESPN publishes their who picked whom um, statistics pretty much, I think, like a day or two after the brackets go up. So I have Nevada right now, based on the consensus bracket, with a 3% chance of making it to the Final Four, which is a huge number for a six seed. But because they've been getting so much attention, um, you know, there may be more than 3% of brackets that have them in the Final Four. So I may shy away from them. It really depends on, on what we see going forward. So I try not to get too, too bogged down into, I really like this team and here's why. My first look is, what are the chances of them making this far? And then how does that match up with what other people might think? So we're talking to Neil Greenberg, staff writer with The Washington Post here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with friend of the show and my co-host this morning, Dan Schwab. I want to ask you something about a process question, which we talk about a lot on Wharton Moneyball, Neil, and I'd love your thoughts. Um, here's what a lot of us do, and I wondered if just tell us, tell me if I'm nuts in doing this. Let's imagine I'm looking at the bracket of 64. Let's imagine the play-in games have happened. I fill out my bracket, each of the teams. What I always then do is to say, okay, now that I've picked each game individually, let me look in total at how many upsets that I've picked. And typically what I notice is I've picked too much chalk. I've picked too many favorites. Then I go back and I say, you know what? If I pick 90% favorites to win, I just know that can't be right. Am I nuts to do that? Do you ever use what we call aggregate statistics to help make individual picks? Or how do you think about this process I just talked about? Yeah, well, that's what I use the uh, ESPN's who picked whom numbers. So if I know... You know, let's just say for argument's sake, I pick Duke to win the whole thing. I give them a 15% chance right now to win it all. But if 25% of brackets have Duke winning, I know that that's not a that 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 right away. I need to make another selection. Not because I don't think Duke can win, but I know that I can't win the pool having Duke win. You know what I mean? Like right. I have to be 
much more perfect early on in the bracket because I have little differentiation towards the end of the bracket when the points are at the most, right? You get 32 points for picking the winner, which in my opinion is obviously the most important pick of the whole thing. You get, you know, 16 points per pick in the in the final game, etc. So I I probably do the same thing that you do. I I, I go with who I think is going to win. So I have my bracket. And then I have to look and see, okay, where can I maximize more value? So I'll certainly make changes based on that. And like I said, it has nothing to do with me thinking Duke can or can't win. It has to do with I want to win the pool, right? I'm out there to, to, to beat everybody else. And it's much more difficult to do that if I have a team that either everyone else is picking or – is on more brackets than I think that they should be, and therefore doesn't provide me any value. Neil, before we move on to hockey, because I really would love your thoughts on hockey, I want to ask you one last question. You even just talked about winning the pool. So how would all of the advice you've given our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball change if instead you are, I'll just use the language of mathematics, your objective function wasn't to win, but your objective function was to perform well, to get as many points as you could, expected points, but not necessarily win. Can you give our listeners a thought? Because you keep using, which is many of us, we want to win the pool. But suppose we just want to do well. How would that change your rationale for picking? I'd probably pick um, much more chalk. Not that I would have like an all-one-seated Final Four, but um, I certainly would look at some of the the ranking methods that are out there, whether that's Pomeroy or Sagarin. Um, You know, rankings that I know have good predicted value and just focus on the higher ranked team um, because I know that over time that they're going to win. So I think, you know, you look at the better seed, picking the better seed to win, you'll probably get about 70% of the points. Um, you know, if you start to use a little bit of analytics with some with one of the better uh, ratings out there, you can probably boost that up to 75%. Um, so I, and, and even get some upsets in there because sometimes the, the double-seeded teams do well in the rankings, they just aren't well-known or they don't have the resume of some other teams. So um, that would be my advice is to to just go with the, the better ranked team, the better seeded team, and then you should you should be able to quit yourself quite well. That's great. Now, thank you. And this is Dan, and I'll make sure I give you 10% of the pot when I win it, thanks to your <laughs> advice. I appreciate it. So, so let's talk a little bit about hockey. Um, obviously, the Lightning have just been dominate in the regular season, but there's the regular season, and then there's the real season, right? Playoff hockey, and everyone... You know, that's really when the casual fan becomes a passionate fan. Um, so talk a little bit about that and why there's so much chaos when it comes to playoff time, that, that the, the, the top seeds don't have the same uh, sticking powers maybe they do in other sports. Um, I think it's because the, the level of competition is much higher, right? You're not playing the Ottawa's and the New Jersey Devils of the world. You're playing Tampa Bay is playing the Islanders and the Capitals and um you know, Calgary and San Jose are playing Nashville and Winnipeg, uh, so it's it's a much different caliber of um, of competition, and it's not just one game, right? It's a it's a seven game series, and hockey in of itself is very luck driven. It's not something that skill overtakes luck with any degree of certainty. I mean, we see fluky goals all the time. Um, so I think that it just the the um, kind of like the chaos factor involved in hockey is way higher than any of the other sports, and I, and then, and that's why I think that we see um, you know these teams that maybe on paper don't look like they have a chance, and that includes uh, Washington last year. The analytics did not look very favorably on Washington at all. 
And uh, yet, because of the matchups, because of the defensive changes that they made, because of some of the, the tactical decisions they made once the playoffs started, things that you really can't account for in a model, um, they were able to obviously do quite well and, and win the Stanley Cup. How historically great do you see this Lightning team? I mean, they're trending right now at towards, I think, about 126, 127 points. doesn't quite make seem like it'll get quite to the Montreal Canadiens number, but um, is this a historically good team, or is it due to just there are a bunch of bad teams um i think that we're just i think that they're playing very very well i think that we're seeing you know obviously nikita kucherov is having a monster season um he's going to run away with the the heart trophy he's probably going to run away with the outstanding player award he's already got a hundred and something points um he's got more assists than than some some players have points i mean the guy is just absolutely phenomenal um but i also think that we're we're looking at a you know, a season where goal scoring is a little bit easier. Their teams are scoring over three goals per game, the highest we've seen since 2005-2006 when the when the league first exited the lockout. Um, save percentages are at a um, are, are at a I want to say like a set, like a ten year low. Um, so it's it's much easier to score this year than it has been in years past, um, and you know that's helped certainly help Tampa Bay a little bit. Not that it, they not that other teams don't get that type of uh benefit as well. But, you know, Tampa Bay, we talk a lot about Kucherov. Um, you know, they still also have Steven Stamkos who is one of the best goal scorers in in the NHL. Um they have Victor Hedman, one of the best defensemen in the NHL. Uh Braden Point somehow has emerged as a potential forty goal scorer. Um, you know, they have Ryan McDonough, they made some trades, they, they really got a lot better. And, you know, to their credit, they stood pat at the trade deadline because they obviously saw what was what, what they had, and there was really no reason to, to tinker with it at all. And then you have Vasilevsky and Net with a 931 save percentage. I mean, you put all these those things together, and it's very difficult to, to beat this team. So I think they are just absolutely on a historic tear because everything is going right for them right now and uh, they're just tough to beat from top to bottom even strength and power play I mean they're just doing everything's falling their way right now. So Neil I know we only have you for one more minute so just in a rapid fire round let me get your point predictions of who's going to win. Let's start with Major League Baseball who do you like this season to win the MLB championship? Um, I I uh, I like the Dodgers before I heard about Kershaw. the um you know the Kershaw injury that one to me was a little bit uh, a little bit rough but I think I'm going to have to stay with the Dodgers I mean the Yankees certainly look good um they they're probably going to break the home run record again and the Astros Red Sox um I'll go with the Astros All right Astros let's go to the NBA who do you like in the NBA this season <laughs> to win it all Yeah I mean other than the uh well, other than the, Is the, it the Golden Warriors? State or the Field you can have I mean, Golden State or the uh, Field I would still take Golden State even if you gave me like minus a thousand I'd probably still just take Golden State All right how about the NHL Um that's a tough one um that's a tough one I actually I I like Toronto, and I know that they haven't been as great, but I do think there's just too much talent on that team. I think if they get the right matchup, you have a guy like uh, Tavares, um, I think that they could do a little bit of a surprise. And last but not least, March Madness. Who do you like in the NCAA tournament upcoming? 
Um, Besides I... the Penn Quakers, of course, <laughs> who we think are going to win their last two games, sneak into the Ivy League Final Four, and make a deep run. The, the, right. By the way, the say, undefeated, uh, the undefeated Big Five champion I'm Penn glad Quakers. You said not to pick them because that was going to be who it was. <laughs> um, I, I'm sticking with Michigan State right now. I, I think that they have a good chance to win, and I do like um, I do like in terms of, of value as well. So I'm sticking with Michigan State. Well, Neil, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this half hour on Morton Moneyball. We've been talking to Neil Greenberg, staff writer at the Washington Post, whose beat is sports analytics. His analysis and insight can be found on Fancy Stats blog. So, Neil, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Great. Yeah, thanks, Neil. So lots of us to debrief about, uh, Dan, about what Neil said. Um, I'm just interested in his prediction. Let's just quickly go through them. Um, His MLB prediction was the Houston Astros. I mean, wow. I mean, let me just say... The just whoever comes out of the AL is going to have to get out of a juggernaut. I mean, again, we have the big three again: the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Astros. Yep. And you know, we're not even talking about other teams that have the potential of being good in the AL as well. Um, what do you think about that? Well, it uh, there's a direct correlation between size of the markets, right? You've got if you look at the American League, there are probably three of the four largest markets. So other teams are going to have a hard time competing. All three are very well stocked, right? I think all of them haven't necessarily taken any steps backwards. I think the road will go through one of those three places. The question will be, will the Astros have home field advantage because the Yankees and Red Sox will beat up on each other throughout the year? Well, that's another one. So let's start with the NBA. You obviously agree with his prediction of the Warriors. Would you take the Warriors of the field? I would take the field. I like a team surprising them. I think, to your point, Houston could have beat them last year and should have beaten them last year without without Paul, uh, Paul uh, Chris Paul's injury. I would love to see. I think it would be great great for the NBA to have a young team like the Sixers make it. Uh, that would be my dark horse. I would love to see that. That would be great. Uh, NHL, any thoughts? I'm not a massive NHL fan. I tend to go with the team that's going to win 125 points, but he seems to like Toronto. And as you said, it's a totally different season. Um, the the heartstrings pull at Toronto. They haven't won in so long. They have such a loyal fan base. Um, I think it would be that would be the the darling to win this year. There's a lot of great teams. I think there's maybe six teams that could win it. Um, I would love to bet on Toronto. And let's go with March Madness. What are your thoughts on March Madness? He likes Michigan State. I mean, look, you know, it reminded me when he was talking about Michigan State. People say, well, of course, Tom Izzo has won the big one. He has, but it's been a while. He, it reminded me when he was talk when we, our previous guest, uh, uh, Tom Haverstrow, was talking about champion Rajon Rondo. Yeah, that was like 13 years ago. And right. let me tell you. I may have won the title with Paul Pierce, <laughs> Kevin Garnett, and Ray Allen on the team, too. You know, put me as the 11th man on the bench. I'm sure it would have been fine. So how do you think about Michigan State, or who do you like? Well, I think the young teams, this is a year where they start peaking, right? So teams like Kentucky and others really struggled early in the year. Uh, but there's a great quote. The Maryland coach, uh, Turgeon, uh, says by this part of the year, they're, they're sophomores, right? So they've got in 25 games, and it changes. So I still think if Zion's playing, Duke is tough to pick. You know, you've got three of the top five probably draft picks. I think it'd be hard to beat them. Um, I think Kentucky is playing really good basketball today. Um, I don't dislike Michigan State. I think this time from February 15th on, is was about as good a coach in, in NBA history or in, in college basketball history. So I think that's not a, I think that's a fun outlier pick. Well, I think we'll, we'll definitely have to see, but it was good to get Neil Greenberg's pick. So, Dan, in our last half hour, we have a little more time for what caught your eye in sports. Um, what caught your eye in sports also uh, in the last week or so? Well, when I was preparing for the show and thinking about sports and thinking about data, something immediately came to mind, and that's the NFL Combines. Because it's amazing the amount of data that comes out of that event. And they're looking at things that they're, they, they take a step back from the intangibles, right? 
and they go specifically to the data. What do they run the 40 in, right? How big is his hand, right? Um, what does he weigh, right? Did he gain 10 pounds or lose 5 pounds? So to me, I think it would be interesting to look at really what are some of the data that historically is proven out, right? Is a, is a safety um, that can run, you know, a 4 3 40. How, what is, does that predicate success in the NFL versus height? Because I think they look so much at the data, and I think there's a little bit of the um, – uh, I guess the emotion that gets caught into play when someone bench presses the most reps, right? When you look at this physical specimen of this wide receiver that's unlike anyone you've ever seen before, you know, how do you try and translate into success, right? And how are their hands and what are their for a, for a quarterback, right? What is the completion percentage? Well, let me tie this also to something, you know, I'm trying, since we're fortunate enough to have you here today and someone that actually runs a real business for a living, um, I always like to try to tie what we're doing to what you guys would do at D&H. So let's imagine you have a belief when you guys are hiring people that, you know, Obviously, there are great people at every university, which there is definitely true. But, you know, in some sense, universities are credentials. Sure. Test scores mean something. Um, how do you guys think about it when you say, you know what, we love this person, but what's on paper is not necessarily what somebody you would say, well, if I never met the person or talked to them, it's not a lead on paper. But now I've met them and I've talked to them. They seem faster on the field than their time seems. How do you weigh that in your own business when, I'll call it the hard data, the resume says X, but the intangibles say Y? How do you think about that? Uh, you, in business, you would maybe drive that translation to street smarts versus school smarts. And I would say that the data goes much more with um, the value proposition of the individual versus just what the data says, right? So whatever their GPA was, whatever, everyone shows on their resume that they grew their business 10% of the previous company, but how much was they doing versus the right product or the right team around them? To me, it's the, it's the, it's the intangibles of the individual that drive success. And that's where I find it so interesting that they focus so much on the data and the combines versus was this guy a winner in college, right? Did this person go above and beyond, right? Did they make the plays? Did they, they do the things that it takes to to win. A lot of these guys have the skill set to be success, but it's the intangibles that separate the true winners. Since everybody on Wharton Moneyball knows I spend a lot of time watching the combine, which is true, the thing I like the most about it, about the analytics coverage of it now, is they're starting to say things like the following, which I kind of like. Of the top 20 linebackers at this position, here's the average you know, 40-yard dash they ran at the combine. So what does that mean? It means, number one, they're looking at past data and using it to predict future performance, which is observed. Second, they're not saying, well, the fastest guy is this. They're looking at a bunch of people, sure. and they're kind of getting what I call is a necessary but not sufficient condition, which means, you know, I'll make it up. The average linebacker runs a four six seven at the combine that's a top 20 player. All right, so if you run a four eight, does that mean you can't be a great linebacker? No. But it does mean you better have other things that counterbalance it. So I like the coverage. It's getting more analytics in nature. Well, and some of the analytics, you know, becomes extreme, right? You know, they, they, they talked a lot about how DK Metcalf has a 1.6% body fat. Well, is, is body fat a prediction of success, right, in the NFL? So I think some of those things... Not for an offensive lineman. I want a little bit of non-movability on that person. <laughs> well, I thought one of the things was interesting is uh, a new data that's coming out on CPOE. So this is completion percentage above expected. 
Because of the NFL, it's all about as a quarterback's the most critical position, and you have to have completion. So they look at arm strength. You know, there's lots of things saying if you don't have accuracy, the rest of the, your intangibles don't matter, right? Or the rest of the data, right? Whether it's it's strength of speed or height, right? So they all talk about are you tall enough to be an NFL quarterback and throw over the line? Well, we've we've proven that with Russell Wilson that that it's not the primary uh, denominator of success. I think w- one of the nice things about the CPOE metric that you talk about is it brings in exactly what we talk about on Wharton Moneyball all the time, which is advanced data, which means if I know the pocket coverage, if I know how much time you've had in the pocket, I know where the receiver is because all of this tracking data knows this. I know where the defensive coverage is. I know the length of the pass and the route that was won. I can predict the completion percentage with very high accuracy. Now the question is, how did you do? I get, if you'd like, a number. Let's say you completed it. That's a one. You had a 68% chance. 1 minus 0.68 is 0.32. You can add that up over all the passes, and there's CPOE. I think, to be, if it were me, that would be the not only, but that have to be the most important thing that I'm looking at. Or if you want, if you call it about added win share. So, you know, sure. I can complete a 2-yard pass, but let's see me complete a 30-yard pass when it really matters. I think this is a a calling card. This is a celebration of advanced statistics. I agree. And the data is really proven. It's not perfect, right? There are always outliers. When you look at the history of the CPOE, there's some guys that maybe uh, that, that fell. But they, the CPOE does take into account the circumstances. So a good example is the defenses in the Big Ten are vastly different than the Big 12 and the amount of passes thrown. So they weight them differently based on the opponents they play. And, and the data has proven out that if you have a high degree of accuracy and completion percentage in the Big Ten, your chances of success of the NFL are higher uh, than the average. One of the things, so since you mentioned the measurables and height, obviously we're both really referring to Kyler Murray. Yeah. And by the well, way, they said he's he's 5'10 versus 5'8, and everyone's excited. So literally, it was an inch and a half difference. Is that why you're going to say he's going to be successful or not? Well, it's also interesting that they say he's 5'10 and one-eighth of an inch. <laughs> like, like, I really care whether he's 5'10 or 5'10 and one-eighth of an inch. One of the things you did hear out of the combine, I'd love to hear how you think about this. And matter of fact, it also relates to DNH. It's a related question. Now they're starting to say he didn't do so well in the interviews. And we also know that they actually give tests to the people. They give Wonderlick tests and other types of tests. I have a two-part question, but it's the same question. Do firms like D&H, do you guys ever give tests, whether it's psychological batteries or whether it's, you know, knowledge tests, um, or do whether it's D&H or companies like yours, do you do this? And two, if someone didn't score well on it, what would it mean to you? Would you not draft Kyler Murray well because he interviewed poorly? I think when you're looking at any team environment, it's critical that you look at it from a multifaceted standpoint. And it's not just their data or how good they are at their job individually. Because no one wins individually. You win as a team. So for us, we do some testing, but we actually uh, look at it and we have people interview with peers, interview with their direct reports, and interview obviously with who they'd be reporting to. So you get a good 360 view. Because that person has to fit your culture. And I think culture is underestimated in business and in sports. That when you have – they talk about a cancer in the locker room, right? When someone uh, is, is, is unhappy and it's, it's a distraction, it's amazing. You know, look, look what happens when a team is a positive contributor and brings other people together. I think that – they don't talk about it as much, you know, the, the, the culture and the fabric of a team – uh, but with free agency in sports, it makes a big difference. So if you have a leader that has those intangibles, I think you have to get that from the interview process and having conversations. So the interview process went for Kyler Murray, and a bunch of teams were saying, eh, not so great. Would that make you – well, first of all, let me ask you a related question. So the Arizona Cardinals have the number one pick. Sure. Last time I checked, 
They drafted a quarterback, was it number nine last year, Josh Rosen? It was somewhere around there. They just drafted a quarterback last year. So how would you think about that? Well, first of all, they, uh, they're they firing their coach after one year, so that's not a great body of work to judge a success or, or a quarterback. Because I think you bring these quarterbacks out of college, and the, you look at someone like an Aaron Rodgers or a Brady who started for a year and had a year to learn on the bench and understand the game because the speed of the game is so vastly different. I think they put these these kids in unfair situations. I would be concerned if, if you know, I've, you know I've been, obviously we weren't there for the interview, but if there's red flags, you're betting the house on this guy. This person not only has to perform in the field, but they're going to be the embodiment of your franchise. And when they have a issue, when they speak out to the media, it literally has an effect on your franchise value, on the on the fans' perception of your team. I think we've learned that in a couple of years of just how loud of a voice some of these athletes have. And if you're an owner of a team, I think that's a variable that's a concern. So would you draft I me mean, just based on what you've saw over Kyler Murray's career at Oklahoma? Would you draft him number one? You're the Arizona Cardinals. Let's even forget you're the Cardinals. Someone, well, the Cardinals may be in an ideal position to trade that pick if sure. someone else thinks Kyler Murray is the next. I use this as a joke. Is he the next Baker Mayfield? Let's be clear. Baker Mayfield, people were incredulous that the Browns used the number one pick on Baker Mayfield. Let me just tell you, I think Cleveland's laughing now. Oh, if he played uh, those first four games of the season, he may have been the MVP of the league. I mean, he was literally had that type of season as a, as a rookie. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take him with the first pick. I think if he had not vacillated between baseball and football and been in the press for so much, I think he is absolutely going to be a, an NFL quarterback. I don't know that I with a number one overall pick, you have to pick a sure thing. So that's I would have if there's question marks on him after the interview process, um, I would I would I would pause. And by the way, thanks to our producer Matt Datz, I was off by one. Rosen was the tenth pick in the draft last year. I don't. I would love to know if any team has ever taken a quarterback two consecutive years with a top ten pick. That would be remarkable if that were true. Well, I think uh, Cleveland Brown probably took it with five picks over ten or twelve years. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, they certainly took they certainly took lots of different quarterbacks. Maybe maybe giving them a little more than a year to pick through them. Um, I'd like to now switch to baseball a little bit and talk about uh, projections for baseball and wins losses. I'm actually going to start with the team. Which team in baseball, by the way, according to Fangraphs, Fangraphs is a very reputable place where you can go to get projections for the season. Which team, Dan, of all 32 MLB teams do you think has the highest number increase in wins from the 2018 season to 2019? Oh, Delta. So basically most, Delta. most improved team. Most improved team. Okay, so it's not going to be one of the top 10 teams because they're already above uh, the statistical mean. All right, so let's, by the way, I'm going to break down what Dan's saying step by step. So what Dan is talking about is the concept, we've talked about this many times, regression to the mean, which is, let's take the Yankees last year. Yankees won 100 games. Now, one of two things is what's likely true is they weren't truly a 100-win team. They were a 97-win team, and they got lucky. The error went plus three in their favor. This year, it's not likely to go in their favor, so maybe they regress back to the league average, which, by the way, we know is 81 because every team has to win or lose. Um, the Yankees are going to regress back. So you are correct. It is not one of the top teams in the league. So I'll I'll do the flip side and say one of the, the worst teams, um, and I would go with Maybe the the Miami Marlins. They were so beat up. They were so downtrodden. Uh, maybe they uh, they they have so, some improvement with some young players. Interesting. So according to Fangraphs, they won sixty three games last year. Not a particularly good season. They're predicted actually for pretty much the exact same record mm. this year, sixty two. Okay. So let me give you another guess. Maybe a team very close to your home. Oh, you're not going to say the Baltimore Orioles, are you? 
The fan fan graphs has the Baltimore Orioles going from 47 wins last year, which, by the way, is a historically bad season. Thanks for reminding you're, us. You're, yeah, you're welcome. Um, to 63 wins this year. Now, you might say, well, I mean, it's 16 wins. So can you tell us, have, what besides losing Machado, what have the Orioles done? Losing Machado, they lost most of their their best players. They haven't signed Adam Jones. Their all-star potential second baseman they traded away for virtually nothing. Um I think the only argument would be that you can't be that bad twice in a row. <laughs> is, is, is that the argument? That some of these young players that are trying to earn a spot, there was a lot of dysfunction on the team, right? Because they were talking about trading all these players. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, I guess uh, th- that whole culture was going the wrong way, right? There was a lot of uh, every man for themselves. So I guess that would be the argument that because they had the worst record, one of the worst records of all time, they could only do better. But let me just say, by the way, that. So that's always the statistical question. How much do you shrink them back towards the average? I think we both agree, given their loss of talent, a 16-win increase is a lot. Maybe they think Chris Davis can't have the another season quite as historically bad as he had, and he can actually hit. I don't know. There's been nothing on paper or players added that would say this team is going to be 16 games better than the previous year. Now let's go to the other side. Here are three teams that fan graphs. I mean, there's lots of you know different ones that actually it's predicting are going to lose, are going to shrink back 13 games. There's three teams, three winning teams. So one is the Red Sox. The Red Sox won 108. Fangraphs is predicting them only 95 wins. We've got the Athletics, 97 and 65 last year. Fangraphs is predicting them at 84 wins. The Brewers won 96 games last year. Fangraphs predicting them at 83 wins. Does it surprise you the degree to which they're shrinking back? I mean, 13 is... Big number. It's regression to the mean. That's as much. simple as that. I mean, when would you predict a team's going to win 100 games, right? That's rarely would they ever say By the way, none. Right. So There's not. And by the way, this gets back. To, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on this. If I asked you to bet right now, this is, by the way, this is a really important point for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. If I asked you to bet right now, let's say even money, will any team win 100 games? What would you say? Nope, because you look back on average over half the years, no one is more than well over half the years. Okay, I would have thought you might have said yes. Let me. Well, that's a different statistical point. This this one I was going to make is picking the given team to do it is really hard. But someone, any team will do it. Likely, in my view, I think the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Astros, one of them. Sure. is likely to win 100 games. I don't know, say likely. I don't know how close to 50-50 it is. But yeah, that was my point that I was trying to make was picking the team versus saying any team's going to do it. But you're right. There, as a matter of fact, I don't know if there's ever been a year where they've predicted any given team to win 100 games in that year. Likely not. Likely not. It would have to be some extraordinary circumstances where they were already the best team and they added a couple key pitchers, right, and put them over the top. Well, we could argue that except for, by the way, the bad news about Severino yesterday, which is that he seems to be having some arm issues. The Yankees um, have added some talent in the pitching dimension where, you know, Sabathia is no longer the two or three starter. He's even moved down the list. The I was excited about the Yankees starters up until I heard Severino was being injured, was injured a little bit. Yeah, they finally made the focus really on the starting pitching. You know, that's really when it comes to playoffs, it's all about pitching. So they 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 got enamored for a long time with a lot of the great bats and the great fielders. I think uh, the smart teams look at what the Astros have done, look at what a lot of the teams have done. If you focus on the great, if you, if you have a great, uh, if you have two aces, you're going to make it to the second round of playoffs. Well, that's right. I mean, remember, let's all you have, if these aces look look if two aces can win all of their postseason starts, you win the World Series. I mean, you except if in a seven game series, assuming it's forget the first round, the seven game series, 
if they can both start twice, you yeah. win for those four games, you advance. Look at Kurt Schilling and Randy Johnson when they played on uh, on Arizona. Name another pitcher on the team. They didn't need another pitcher. They now, do we have to go back to the 2001 <laughs> season when, yeah, I mean, Matt Datz is saying, yes, we do. You mean when the Yankees were going for the four-time title and the uh, Mariano Rivera was on the mound? That is painful to think about. But, Dan, it's time for you and me to put our money where our mouth is for our over-under segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's over-under. All right, so, Dan, I've got a bunch of over-unders for you. Let's, since we've been talking about baseball, let's start with baseball. So let's start with our guy, Bryce Harper. So over under 34 and a half home runs for him this season. Just to give you the data, he's waffled around that number. Last year, 34, 2017, 29, 2016, 24, 2015, 42. So does Bryce Harper hit over or under 34 and a half home runs in 2019? The under. I think the last three years, based on what you said, he averaged 29. We take out the 2015 outlier year. Um, I think he's going. He's p- p- pitching a lot of the same pitchers in the same division. Uh, I see no reason. And in fact, he's now going to be going against the Washington Nationals p- pitchers. Um, I would argue that I'd take the under. I'm going the under as well. I like what you've done, which is you've downweighted to look. If I if we just if I had if Matt Datz who typed this up, thank you, Matt. If Matt had removed that 2015 year and I said. 24, 29, 34. One argument would be his average is... Matter of fact, this is an interesting statistical mm. point. His average is 29, but directionally, he's gone up five every year. You know, if you ask your third... if you have, I have a seventh grade son. Ben, 24, 29, 34. What's the next 39. number in the sequence? He's going to go 39. Yep. So it's interesting whether you take the average or you believe this linear trend. I'm going under 34 and a half also. Let's stick with the Phillies. Uh, 89 and a half wins. So what do you think about the Phillies? Last year, the Phillies won 80 games. So do you think that Bryce Har- the addition of Bryce Harper, they also added McCutcheon, they added uh, uh, Real Muto and Segura, is that worth 10 more wins for the Phillies? No. I think they overachieved last year. I think they're absolutely a playoff team. I don't know that they would win 10 more games this year. Okay, so you're going under 89.5. I'm going to go over 89.5. I think the reason I think that is because I think the Phillies, while they slumped a little bit at the end, I think they have young talent that's actually going to get better. And I think they have a really good blend of young players and, if you'd like, the veteran players like the Bryce Harpers, Rio Muto, etc. So I'm going to go over 89.5 for the Phillies. What's also interesting, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. We talked about just a tiny bit at the break. Most the number of predicted wins when they hired when they signed Bryce Harper, most fans would be like, "Oh, that's worth eight to ten wins itself." Well, what's what's his WAR? What's the the war? answer? Is, it's three above what they had at that position. Hmm. Most people would say, "Wait a second, you're telling me we paid three hundred and thirty million dollars for three more wins?" Well, that is re- realistically. So, what I wanted your thoughts on is, of all the sports you follow, basketball, hockey, NFL, MLB. Which sport do you think, if you hire one of the big stars, adds the most into your wins above replacement? And let's call it percentage, because you know they only play 16 games in football, they play 162 in baseball, they play 82 in NBA, 80 in hockey. Which sport for you? It's definitely not baseball. It's either basketball, because you have five players in the field. I think that would have to be your first one. Um, the second would be base, or excuse me, football because of uh, quarterback and their impact on the game and the, how much they touch the ball. I'm going for NFL. I agree with you there. I think you take an average team and you put a sensational quarterback on it. I think 
it can make a huge difference. Let's do a few more. Let's maybe move. Jacksonville Jaguars may find that out next year. Uh, they may find that out. Well, it depends. Are they going to get the 27 touchdown and two interception Nick Foles, or are they going to get the Nick Foles, who's essentially a 500 quarterback in the regular season? Which of the two are they going to get? They should bench him the first 13 games of the year and then play him. Ah, but they got to play somebody <laughs> those first 13. Uh, oh, actually, I have to get this. The next one on our over-under, I have to get your opinion. Are the Orioles over under 59.5? They won 47 games last year. We have to get it on record how Ugh. you feel about your hometown Orioles. Well, not your hometown, but your well, yeah, your hometown Orioles. So I'm, I, they're near and dear to my heart. Um, passionate. I love them when they're bad. I love them when they're good. I love them more when they're bad because that's part of it. It's like being a Boston Red Sox fan right in the 70s and 80s. They're going to be over that because they can't lose 100 games two seasons in a row. I just can't handle that. So I'm going to go with the over 59.5. And, and I'm going to go under just because I think with their loss of talent, I think they're going to be better. But 13 extra wins. People don't realize that's a lot of extra wins. So I'm going to go under 59.5, but if anyone cares, over 47. Let's go now to the NBA. We've got some interesting uh, numbers here. Uh, I know how you're going to pick this one, but I'll start with the first one. 0.5 championship finals appearance for the Rockets this year. So in other words, the only reason you would take the under, over, sorry, would be if you think they're going to make the finals, that's the Rockets. Otherwise, you should take the under. 0.5 0.5 championship appearances for the Rockets this year. Will the Rockets make the finals? I'll take the under. Okay, I'm, I, I, I have to be at least consistent with myself <laughs> an hour ago. I, I'm taking the over. I, I think the Rockets are going to go to the NBA finals this year. I like them uh, a lot. Um, how about next year? The Lakers, five and a half seed in the West. Will they be a top five seed in the West or under? Obviously, they're going to have LeBron. Maybe they're going to have Anthony Davis. Maybe they're going to have a whole. Maybe they're going to have Kevin Durant. Maybe they're going to have a whole bunch of players. Do you think the Lakers are a top five seed in the West next year? Okay, so to to be a top five seed based on this year, they are nine games behind. So they would have to be, have a nine game improvement. For- now we're not even done with the season. They may end up being twelve or thirteen behind the five seed. Do they improve twelve to fifteen games next season? Boy, that's a nice way of looking at it. So I would argue that, no, they're not going to be. I think that, your again, your heartstrings would pull and say that LeBron's going to get another A player. If they get Anthony Davis, everything changes, right? They're one of the best teams, and, and they they probably attract a really strong number three player to go with Kuzma and, and the balance of the team. But I would probably um, – there's a lot of young talent in the West. I think OKC, Houston aren't going to get any worse. Denver is going the right direction, Utah. So I would say uh, I'll take the under. The over, you mean. The over. They'll be over. They'll be a lower six seed or below. Yes. And I completely agree with that. Well, Dan, it's been great to share two hours here with you on Morton Moneyball. So I've been co-hosting this morning with a friend and friend of the show, Dan Schwab, uh, co-president of D&H Distributing. So, Dan, thank you for joining us this week on Morton Moneyball. Of course, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and some combination of myself, Cade Massey, Adi Weiner, and Shane Jensen are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 Eastern, here on Morton Moneyball. You can follow us on on iTunes and other places. Thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Thank you, of course, to our producer, Matt Datz. So this has been two hours of Moneyball. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics. See you next week on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.